Glad to see so many of you here. I hear we have some visitors here from Virginia and elsewhere. We're certainly grateful to have Josh Lyons' beautiful young wife here with us today, and I'm sure he's very happy about that. So we can all continue to pray for one another and all these personal situations that we, we know about. I thought we had an excellent sermonette this morning. Mr. Hart started off well. He kept going well, and he had very practical, very helpful ideas all the way through. So it was a very good start, and I appreciate that. We have many fine young men coming along in the church, and I hope many more of you will join the spokesman clubs and other activities where you can learn, especially you young men. I tell our luncheon group here, we have the executive lunch. I said, I hate old ministers. You know that. I'm one too, of course. (laughs) So we want more young ministers. I'm kidding about the old ministers, but we definitely need more young ministers, and we want to bring more of you along. And you are not perfect yet. That's terrible. You are not perfect yet. But we're not perfect yet either, and I've not yet met a perfect minister in my whole life. So there's only one perfect minister, and his name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So we have to understand that. But anyway, it was a good start. Very fine music by the young lady. I appreciate her voice. And brethren, we have continued to have good growth in the work. We've had a whole bunch of very inspiring and encouraging responses to the special telecast that I gave last week, the television internet program. And we're very grateful for that response and many other things that are coming along. Many of you have requested, brethren, and I'm not just doing this because it's convenient. I want you to know that. Many have requested over the last year or so that I get back to something I used to do and have done here a number of times. I don't think in this hall, but in the other hall and down through the years. That is, from time to time, to get back and expound one of the books, one of the smaller books in the Bible, just verse by verse. Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to do that. He'd go through the whole book of Hebrews, and he'd sometimes have two or three weeks in between, but he'd come back on that. And I don't want to expound a long book like that because I don't speak that often every third or fifth week or something, and I know there could be a lapse of understanding in between. But I think I will choose some of the smaller books, especially the Apostle Paul or John or James, that we don't understand as well as we should, and I hope I can help you with that, and I believe that I can. This particular book that I'm going to expound is one from the Epistles of Paul, and I was the original Epistles of Paul teacher. When I went through Ambassador College myself, there was no such course. I had to introduce it into the curriculum, and I found out on the nationwide baptizing tours with Raymond McNair in 1951, Burke McNair in 1952, Herman Hay in 1953, and other tours since then, that most of the questions, literally in those early years especially, were about the epistles of Paul. The Apostle Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. You can read that back in 2 Peter 3. I won't turn to that. But he did have a knack of doing that. He was trained very technically by the scholar Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest teachers of rabbis of that time and very deeply respected. So he did write things that were sometimes complicated. And we really need to understand what Paul wrote because God used him to write more books in the New Testament than anyone else. By the way, can you hear me? My voice seems to be, I I get the feeling it's reverberating all around. I hear kind of a feedback. So anyway, I don't know if the guys can fix that or should I get closer to the mic? I don't know if that helps or not. Does that help if I get closer to the mic? 
I can't tell. Yes, no. Anyway, we want you to be able to hear. Recently, I've been studying a lot myself through the book of Philippians, and it's one of the most inspiring books in the whole Bible to me. It's a small book, yet tremendously inspiring. It's not one of the complicated books. I thought it was a good place to start with that. But I want to give you the background, the date, the information about this book, and then you can, I will hope to help you really understand these books as I go through some of them in sermons from time to time. And I hope that you, brethren, especially you newer members, that this can help you to learn how to sort of analyze and how to study the Bible yourself rather than just reading over a book real quick and then throwing it to one side or turning back somewhere else to try to slowly read, analyze the verses, think through what these books mean in context. Most of our sermons are saying, turn here, turn there, turn here, turn there, and you keep going, and you often don't get the context. How did the early Christians study? Basically, they studied the same way I'm preaching because they had no New Testament yet, and they weren't really familiar in detail with the Old Testament. So often a whole book would be expounded, no doubt, and Paul would read sections of books and so on, and they didn't, as they studied the Bible, particularly on their own at home, they might have a scroll of Isaiah or a scroll of Deuteronomy, if you follow me. They didn't have concordances. Most of them didn't have a whole printed Bible where they could turn back and forth. They simply went through a book verse by verse in context. So you need to do that. And I found in my own study, I really understand, I feel, the mind of God better by that form of study than any other. Now, there are technical things that you need to do to learn by going here and there. I know that. God says a little here and a little there. But to really understand the whole meaning of each book, it's good to go through it just step by step as we will be today. So to get the background of this book, Philippians, let's turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 15. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. You say, why Acts? Well, you'll understand in a minute. The... Jerusalem conference where they solved some of the problems about the need to be circumcised and so on had just finished and the apostles Barnabas and Saul as they were called Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch a city on the eastern side of the Mediterranean there were two Antiochs in that time one there and then one in Asia Minor called Turkey today in that area but this was the Antioch in Syria So Acts chapter 15, verse 30, after this conference, they went off to Antioch and they gathered the church. And when they had read the encouragement from the apostles that you didn't have to have circumcision anymore to be saved, they were encouraged. Now Judas and Silas were prophets and they strengthened the brethren. And so then Silas remained and Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, verse 35, teaching the, preaching the word of God and many others also. Then after some days, Paul said, let's go back and visit our brethren. So they started to come back through. Paul and Barnabas were human. We can see that by the next few verses. They had an argument. These two apostles had an argument. Paul was the one God used the most, and Barnabas should have understood that, frankly, by a number of indications in the Bible. I won't go into that, but he did not yield. He did not yield. Mr. Hart's sermon was about yielding. He did not yield to the one that God was obviously using the most, and you never hear his his name mentioned again. 
It's interesting. Never mentioned again. I'm sure he didn't fall away. There's nothing indicated by that either. But that's kind of interesting. So Paul did not want to take Barnabas' young nephew, who kind of bombed out on the first trip that they'd taken, the first apostolic trip, and how they were taking another one. And Paul chose Silas. And so then, for that trip, he was taking. Then chapter 16, he came to Derby and Lystra, and they found young Timothy and baptized him. So they baptized Timothy right in that area of Cilicia, which is part of Turkey today. And Paul wanted to have him with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews. The Jews knew his father was Greek, a Gentile. As they went through the area, they delivered the decrees the apostles and elders had made at Jerusalem, so the churches were strengthened in the faith. And so the Spirit then warned them, they were forbidden, verse 6, to preach the word in Galatia, or in that part of Asia, and after they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into into, uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. That's another part of Asia Minor. Somehow God's Spirit guided them powerfully, or gave them a vision or something, don't go there. It's interesting how God was guiding the church more directly at that time. As we get toward the end of this age, brethren, I do feel God will begin to give us specific directions from time to time. If you and I all get on our knees more, cry out to God more, and God becomes more real to us, (coughs) and the spirit world will become more real to us. So the spirit said, don't go there. So they came down to Troas, and a vision So here God was guiding them. A vision appeared to Paul, not to Barnabas, not to Silas or anyone else, to Paul, a man of Macedonia, which is northern Greece. So they had to go across to northern Greece, which was further to the west. This was Paul's first trip, as an an apostle at least, into Europe. He had not been into Europe before, so he came across from what we call Turkey, which was technically in Asia, into Europe for the first time. This vision was telling them, come over here and help us. Verse 10, after he had seen the vision, immediately we, notice the word we, again, uh, freshmen, students, <laughs> epistles class, uh, you're in the epistles class now. We, we, why is that significant? Because at this point it shows that Luke had been with Paul before, but he rejoined Paul. Now Luke had not had written this book, but now he says we. So now it's Paul and Luke and others with them, but we did this and that, sought to go into Macedonia, considering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel. So they came across to Macedonia and to that part of the city, uh, Philippi. And of course Philippi, notice, was the foremost city it was named after Macedon, or Philip of Macedon, one of the great leaders of that area in the past. So it was a, a, a colony. It had been considered a special part of Rome. Certain cities were designated as colonies, and they had the same rights, some of the same legal rights, civil rights, as we would say today, as Roman citizens. Other parts of the Roman Empire did not have that. They could do other things. They could appeal to Caesar. They could not do this. or They were not to be beaten uh, without a thorough trial and so on. They had certain rights that other cities, people of other cities did not have. It's interesting how God called the Apostle Paul out of this city 
for he had not this city, but from that part of the world, of course, in his case, it was a different city, but he had those rights as well. So this is where God started his church in Europe. And on the Sabbath day, verse 13, they came out to a prayer place, a place where prayer was to be made. And so here was a Gentile city and a Jewish woman, undoubtedly, because she was a seller of purple, and everything indicates that she was keeping the Sabbath because she came out to pray and to worship on the Sabbath day. So that's important. She came to worship the Lord. She wasn't worshiping Baal. She wasn't worshiping Diana of Ephesus. She was worshiping God. The Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul. So she and her household were baptized, and then they had this demon that Paul had to cast out. And then when they found out that they were you know, telling, commanding this demon uh, to come out and other things that Jew, the Gentiles didn't like. They beat Paul and threw him into jail. And in verse 25, I'm kind of skipping these details so I can get into Philippians, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. You kind of get here a, a little insight into the attitude and the atmosphere of the original church of God. They were praying and singing psalms in jail. Would we do that? Are we that close to God? Even if we were in jail, would we have memorized some of the hymns? They didn't have any piano, or they didn't have the New York Philharmonic behind them, as it might be in a motion picture <laughs> if this were done. They had nothing. They were praying, and just the walls were there in the jail. But they were praying and singing praises to God at night, and the prisoners were listening some of the prisoners maybe had heard what they believed. Suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. God intervened and then the, their bonds were broken and the chains were loosened and the, prisoner, the warden of the prison came and he was about to kill himself. Paul said, don't do that. And then God preached to him and he and his house were baptized. That was sort of the background of the Philippian church. Lydia and her household and this keeper of the prison and his family, others no doubt were there at the beginning of what became the Philippian church. So at, then they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, that woman who'd helped them at the beginning. And when they'd seen the brethren, they departed and left. So then they went on to other parts of Asia Minor, as we call it. And Paul came back through that area briefly, but then later he wrote this letter. Now, here's the general background of the letter beside that specific background where the church began, so to speak, through Lydia, her household, and God used a woman opening up her house and asking Paul to stay in her house, and this Philippian jailer and others to no doubt help start the church. The date of the letter was probably about 62 or 63 A.D., we know that Paul's imprisonment was from about 61 to 63 in Rome. This is one of the so-called prison epistles. In other words, the letters that Paul wrote from his prison ship in Rome. And, of course, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all called the prison epistles, the letters Paul wrote from that imprisonment. So many scholars feel that this man not have been the first one. We don't really know. But it was one of the prison epistles written about that time from Rome. And also it describes Paul's chains. It shows how he was in prison. As you turn back to 
the beginning of this letter. Philippians chapter 1, he says, Inasmuch as both in my chains, this is verse 7, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. And he says again over here in verse 13, that in my chains, or they know my chains are in Christ. And he says, and most of all the brethren in the Lord having been confident by my chains. So Paul had a ball and chain, as it indicates in Acts 28, between his ankles, and he was in chains in that political imprisonment. He wasn't in a, a dark dungeon in that case, but in a private hired house. And they were more bold to speak the word of God. They thought, well, boy, Paul guarded by a Roman soldier, having a ball and chain between his ankles, if he has the courage to go ahead and preach and have big Bible studies and talk to those people, we'd better have some faith too. We'd better some have the faith too. And so I encourage them, you see, in that way. So the background is that Paul was, of course, a political prisoner in a sense at that time. He'd appealed to Caesar over that other incident in, in Jerusalem and now he was a prisoner in Rome. And that's when he wrote this letter. And he wrote the letter because, of course, another thing is he had just received a big offering. As you turn to the end of Philippians, we'll be coming to that. Epaphroditus had brought a really big offering. And God, or Paul, I mean, really rejoiced and was very thankful. The background history is that Philippi, Philippi was noted as a, a, a center for gold mines. Gold mines. They didn't have a universal currency in the Roman Empire, and so they could send a reasonably small amount of gold that Epaphroditus could carry, and it still would be a great, great, big offering. <laughs> and Paul really rejoiced in that. He probably had enough to last him six months or a year in the gold that Epaphroditus bought, just some special gold coins, no doubt. So he was very thankful, as we'll read. And that's one reason, that's the occasion of the letter that may have caused him to write the letter, plus the fact he wanted to encourage them anyway. Now let's go to Philippians, to the book itself, and get into the letter. Now I hope I'm not leading anything out here, but that's most of the background here. I might say, brethren, that if I were teaching you in the Epistles of Paul class, I would probably have two or three periods. In other words, instead of having one hour, I would have three hours to cover this book and normally take at least that long and have more time to go through it verse by verse and so on than we will have here. I'll try to hit the highlights, though. Here we are, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy. Why did he include Timothy? Well, we just read back there in Acts, Timothy was circumcised by Paul and started off with him on that trip. We saw that back there in Acts 16. He was with Paul when Paul first went into that city. So he as a young man had been present with them, and so now Paul includes him. Paul was humble. He didn't always just write in his own name. He wrote in the name of Timothy as well sometimes. Servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I know we have some among us in the churches out, out there, and some perhaps here that are bugged because we talk about Christ. You cannot read Paul's letters. You cannot read the book of Acts without hearing about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is the way we get into the kingdom of God through his sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the king of that coming kingdom. We worship Christ. We adore Christ. 
He is our all. He is God. I and the Father are one, he said. So you've got to have deep feeling for Christ. He's the one God worked through, down through ages in dealing with mankind. He's the one that spoke. Let there be light. He's the one that spoke to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's the one that spoke to Moses who gave the Ten Commandments. It was Christ's voice. So when you understand that, we need to deeply worship Christ, and God will never be jealous of your worshiping and honoring His Son. Don't ever think that. Don't ever think that. All it says, servants of Christ. The Greek word is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S for you note-takers. That Greek word means bond-slaves. Bought and paid for. Christ died for us. We belong to Him. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops, or we call them elders today, overseers and deacons. So they had a number. It was already an organized church. But he says to all the saints. Now I saw on the front page of the paper this morning, maybe it was the Wall Street Journal or the local, I can't remember, but pictures of the two recent popes, Pope John Paul and uh, Pope, uh, uh, the other pope, uh, they are going to canonize them and make them saints. They try to make people saints as though that's something unusual. Well, hopefully most of you adults, members are saints. All converted people are saints. You don't have to have a great big investigation and have all this stuff to become a saint. It shows how the Catholic Church has messed that all up. To all the saints, raised to you at peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sending them blessings from whom? From the members of the God family. Who's left out every time? Paul uses this at the beginning of nearly every single letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No Holy Spirit. What a colossal insult. An absolute terrible insult to the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is a person. But since the Holy Spirit is not a person, that's not an insult. He's talking about the persons in God. There were only two persons in the family of God. God the Father and God the Son. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. He prayed very joyously because they had been so helpful to him and so giving and open-minded at the beginning when you read the whole story in Acts, and then they just got through sending this big offering of the equivalent of probably fifteen to $35,000 or more of gold, and he was very grateful to them. They had helped him from the beginning, as it says later in this book. I thank God... Always in every prayer for your fellowship and the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. So he was confident that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, one of our evangelists in the past, not recent, but who took my class in the epistles of Paul and ought to have known better, was running around the world saying that Mr. Armstrong could not die. He says, Mr. Armstrong cannot die. If he dies, that will invalidate the Bible because he says God will complete the work through Mr. Armstrong. Does this say that? Is God going to have to complete the work through me? Is God going to have to complete the work through Mr. Ames? It doesn't say that. It says being confident that he has begun a good work in you, in the Philippians. In other words, once God has called you, brethren, then he will finish that work. If he allows you to die and he's been working with you, then you have finished your race. 
you have finished your race. And some of the recent comments about Mrs. Olson and about Mrs. Bonjour and about Mrs. Dan Hall have mentioned that very thing. They undoubtedly had finished their race. They had come to the place that they were ready for the kingdom of God. Were they perfect? No. They may have been better than me and better than many of you in many things in their personal life. No doubt were, but they had learned the lessons God wanted them to live. They had finished their race. So that's what he will finish the work he's begun in us. That's what that means. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you both in my heart and as much as both in my chains. So here is Paul writing again, reminding them he is in chains. And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, all are partakers with me of grace, of God's mercy. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Christ. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. You need knowledge, but you've got to have discernment. You've got to have wisdom to go with that knowledge to make right decisions. Some people get technical knowledge, but they just jump the track and run off in the corner somewhere or out of the church, or whatever, that you may approve, in other words, be, be sure of, prove the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, the day of Christ's return, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Yes, we're to have those fruits, the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Is it because we do it? No, Christ does it in us. Christ does it in us through His Holy Spirit to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out uh, for the furtherance of the gospel. So these things are working for good, Paul says, even though I've been thrown in jail and beaten up and all kinds of things, it's working for good. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard, he was there in Rome, and somehow Caesar's household had gotten to know about him and his situation. And to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. Everything has to do with Christ, if you're a Christian. If you don't like Christ, frankly, I'm sorry, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble if you don't love and worship Christ and make Him the center of your life. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They have more confidence. They see, I'm going through it. I don't have fear. I'm there. Roman soldiers guarded me with a spear. I'm going right ahead. That gives them confidence too. So brethren, if some of us are persecuted, we go on anyway. If I'm thrown in jail and go on anyway and get out messages or do whatever, I hope that won't give you confidence. Not make you say, oh my, the work is over. No, it's not over. It's as what the old uh, Casey Singler or the old baseball guy said. He, he said, it's not over till it's over. <laughs> and my life's not over till it's over. And this work is not over till it's over. So my life might finish and the work would carry right on. And the work will carry on. And Christ will carry right on with his message right up until the second coming. No one can stop it. No one can stop it. We can stop God using us. But God will not stop his work. And that's the thing we have to understand. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife. We find people around here, not here, but in the United States and elsewhere doing that even today. They have their little works and some are attacking us. Some are saying our works are the works of Satan. 
Well, brethren, when they say that, frankly, I like those people, some of them I've known personally and like them. I don't hate them at all. I haven't lost one minute's sleep about it. I mean that. But I am concerned for them because they are very close to committing the unpardonable sin. If they are saying the works that we're doing, the works of God, preaching the gospel, are satanic, and we're the synagogue of Satan, what are they saying? We're not saying we're perfect. We're not. Our work is not perfect. The way we do it is not perfect. We're not perfect. We've never claimed that. But the works we're doing are the works of God. People are going to be terribly, terribly shaken by God if they say that we are doing a satanic work. They are going to be punished terribly. And I fear for them. I would tremble if I were in their shoes. I really would. So we need to appreciate what God is doing through us in spite of our human nature and our own human faults, which we certainly have. So there are some who preach Christ from envy. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that affliction to my chains. Again, he mentions his chains. That's heavy on Paul's mind. He keeps coming back to it. My chains, my chains, my chains. And the latter, out of love, those who preach sincerely, knowing that I, is Paul bragging? No, sometimes you need to say who you are to help people understand what is behind you. I am a servant of the living God. If I'm thrown in jail and they ask me who I am, some people, I may say that. I may, I'm not just going to say I'm some minister with this little tiny group over here you never heard of. I might say, uh, Mr. So-and-so or Judge Jones, I am a servant of the living God. You think, oh, yeah, this guy's kind of presumptuous. Well, I'm sorry about that. That's who I am. Am I a perfect servant of the living God? No. Am I the only servant of the living God? No. But I am a servant of the living God. And Paul said, I, because in his particular case, he was especially appointed to be the leader of the work toward the Gentiles. And God inspired the Bible. All the Bible is inspired of God. And you find back here, Paul said it, but it's in the Word of God back here in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. It shows how he met Peter and James and John. And he said, but on the contrary, verse chapter 2, verse 7 of Galatians, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, it had been committed to Paul. He was the leader. And Galatians was written even before Philippians, and it was apparently very well known. And so, following Mr. James Hart's fine advice, this Barnabas and others should have yielded. They should have yielded to the Apostle Paul. God had shown clearly that Paul was the one in charge of the work to the Gentiles, just as Peter uh, was given the work toward the circumcised, as it says in verse 8. So there are those things that need to be understood. So he says, I, here, not in a wrong way. I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now we go down to verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. Oh, some might say, some have left us saying, we talk about Christ. No, you can't talk about Christ, they say. You're supposed to always say the gospel of the kingdom. Paul didn't say that. Here's your New Testament, read it. Christ is preached. It didn't always mention the gospel of the kingdom. Of course, his entire preaching might have included that. Probably did. Well, always did, eventually. But that was not the only thing they talked about. 
They talked about Christ being their Savior, being their high priest, their living head, their coming king, how to have Christ live his life in you, all that, without necessarily mentioning the gospel of the kingdom of God in every paragraph. If you get me, the New Testament doesn't always do that. Christ is preached. So that is the Bible that we're following in this church. And we, if you love the Bible, you'll want to get what we have because that's what we have and that's what we're going to give you. Christ is preached. And we have to understand that. And this I rejoice and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit and Christ's Spirit are the same. They both proceed from God the Father through Christ. That's another subject. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, get this, so now also Christ will be magnified. Is Christ magnified in your body? I hope now, brethren, that each one of you will ask himself that. I ask myself that from time to time. My body's getting older. I want Christ to be magnified in my body to the degree that I have physical and mental strength and energy. I hope that I can explain Christ, talk about Christ, magnify Christ, honor Christ, and help you to do the same. And through God's Spirit, have you have Christ living His life in you. This is what we ought to seek for, a tremendous message right here. Now also Christ will be magnified in my body. Christ will be magnified in your body if you let him live in you. If you let him through you love God with all your heart and strength and mind. If you learn to truly, not just play acted, but really love your neighbor and have kindness and outflowing concern. Not just to be a nice guy. Sometimes you'll correct your neighbor in love before it's too late. Like Paul, I think like Jesus Christ corrected his apostles from time to time in love. He told Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're an offense to me. And he railed on the terrible religious leaders of his time. As you read the whole book of Matthew chapter 23, you snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell, he told them. Was he mad? Well, he was probably indignant. (laughs) He didn't like it. He was stirred up. But he did it in love to help them and anyone hearing them wake up before it was too late. Your attitude is important, of course. That doesn't mean we need to all go around yelling at people like that. Most of Christ's ministry was not yelling at people like that. But on occasion, he did in love. So it's not a nicey-nice thing. It's sincerely helping other human beings. You sincerely help your children when you correct them. You sincerely help them when you chase them in the right way. A man sincerely loves his wife if he takes the lead. And as Mr. Hart was bringing out, sometimes it's important that the man does take the lead. And most Christian wives want their husband to take the lead. If he'll just do it in the right way, they know that's his job. That's his responsibility. I mean, he's kind of a weep wimp type of guy. He just can't lead. A woman often gets upset at that. She wishes she had a husband who would take the lead and be a man. So you need to do it, all these things, to love your neighbor as yourself through Christ living in you, that Christ is magnified. Christ is magnified in you if you get out and help people, talk to them, encourage them. If you pray, study, meditate fast, and then begin to help the work of God. 
where you can give generous offerings above and beyond your 10% and have your heart in it. Not see how little you can give, but how much you can give. And also get involved in the Spokesman Club. We're going to start an outreach program where we go out and help the poor and people in nursing homes and all that kind of thing. I got that instituted, and Mr. Wyatt Soselk is going to carry it out. And helping him will be Darren Brinson and other leading young men. It's not going to be just the young men in the church. It's going to be young women and some older people can get involved helping as well, in addition to the regular church deacon's duties. An outreach program to help the community and to help poor people in the church and so on. And when you can give and help and serve, Christ will be living in you. And you can do that and you will show Christ. And yes, when he comes like the people in Matthew 25, he said, those, did you visit me when I was sick? Did you visit me in prison? Did you, you know, in a sense, we can say, yes, we did do that. We did do that, and we do need to do more of that. Christ will be living in us. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ will be magnified in my body if I can preach stronger sermons, write more articles, help get the message around the world, and if I can lead the work in a humble way, not just wanting my glory, but to make decisions that are right decisions based on fact that can help the work grow and then try to set a personal example as well as I can. I can't get out and visit all of you personally at age 83 and do those other things, but I should do some of it. I will try to do that more. With the strength we have, we better do all we can with the strength that we have and the time we have while we're still here that Christ will be magnified in our bodies whether by life or by death. Sometimes we may have to die in the faith and die in faith and not in fear or anger against God. Let Christ be magnified in that way. Remember when our father Jacob was about to die, he didn't say, oh God, you can't let me die. That's not right. No, he gathered his sons together to his 12 sons and he said, well, Reuben, this is going to happen to you and, you know, Ephraim, this is going to happen to you. Manasseh, here's the future for you guys. Go to it, so to speak. He gathered them, gave them the final talk, and then he pulled his legs up in the bed and went to sleep. He was a man. He put his trust in God and died in that sense, as we say, as a Christian. Whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Think about that. Your life is Christ. Your life should be a magnification an extension of Christ's life as he lives in you. To live is Christ. But to die is gain because if you die in the faith, then you don't have any more trials. You don't have any more sickness. You don't have any more suffering. You finish your race. In the next split second, you'll be in God's kingdom. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet I, what I shall choose, I cannot tell. He sensed he might be approaching death at that point. Actually, it was several years later. This was written perhaps 62 A.D. Paul probably did die five or six years later. He probably did die around 67 or 68. Everything indicates he did die before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. No more trials, no more suffering, you can't fall away anymore. You just die in the Lord. That's it. You're finished. It's, your race is run. Nevertheless, 
to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, Paul wrote. He sensed that his presence was needful for a few more years to help the brethren to solidify the church. And having this confidence, so he had confidence. And being confident of this, I know, that he didn't think, he said, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy of faith. I continue to strengthen you and bless you and build you that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. I hope to come and see you again. Only let your conduct be worthy. And I tell you, brethren, here, let's all think that. It applies to me. It applies to you. That our conduct may be worthy of Christ. That we're not always sitting around ready, getting ready to get our feelings hurt. We're not sitting around looking for the loose brick. Well, this minister mispronounced this word. Or he said Philippians 5 and he meant, you know, Galatians 4 or something like that. He caught in some technical error. So what? The big thing is the overall picture of a man serving God and the basic truth. You're not looking for the loose brick all the time. So all of us need to have our confidence worthy of the gospel of Christ. Notice it's not called the gospel of the kingdom of God. How dare Paul say that, he might say. He didn't say the gospel of the kingdom of God. He said the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit and God be thanked. Most of us have that in the church today. We've had a wonderful spirit overall and we've had a wonderful, tremendous loyal spirit among the ministry overall. Very, very few of our ministers in all these years have turned aside for years. And we're very grateful for that tremendous unity. When we come together as the Council of Elders, we can just feel it in the room. The love, the warmth, the brotherly feeling, the unity. Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition or destruction, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted, notice this, brethren, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer. Is that a gift? In a sense it is. That's what Paul said. Sometimes it's a blessing to suffer for Christ. If I'm beaten up, or some of you younger men have to be beaten up or thrown in jails for Christ, you're to go out rejoicing. Just like the, apostle, the apostles did, all of them. The servants of God in the past, they thank God I'm willing and capable and been granted to suffer for Christ. And that's an honor, to suffer for the one who suffered for you and not look at it in some negative way. Always put a negative spin on it. Paul put a positive spin on it. You're counted worthy to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict or concern which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, Paul continued... Let's go on here. We hope we'll make it to the end. I don't know now <laughs> all the background I've been giving you. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship, the spirit, affection, and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. God wants us not to be fighting and arguing about little things, but to be of one accord. You say, well, I've got this little technical point. And the church doesn't agree with me on all of my new technical points. 
Well, you don't get that feeling back among those apostles and those brethren back there. They were thankful to be alive. They were thankful that Christ had died for them. He said, be of one accord, and God wants that. Of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Some people take off from us and start their own church. Why? I know some of them by name, and you do too. I'm not going to mention names, but I know them, and I know their attitude. They wanted to be important. They want to be important. They say, well, you started your church. Well, I'm not going to try to apologize every time. Brethren, I had to. The only churches beside Mr. Armstrong were Ted's church, and Mr. Armstrong had told the brethren, told me, don't go with Ted. He's a rebel. He'd said that many, many times. Many times to those of us in Pasadena, I knew that wasn't right. And Gerald Flurry started a church and started right out attacking and attacking the worldwide church for things they didn't do and called Mr. Tocox the great man of sin of Second Thessalonians like he was a great man sitting in the temple of God showing himself that he was God and working miracles. If you read his original booklet, the Malachi's message, which I read through very carefully, that's what that booklet said all the way through, just a massive attack. That was not God's spirit either. So what did I do? I was the only senior evangelist that was willing to stand up at that time. I was the only one. I had looked around. I thought, I can't live with myself if I don't do that. And so God did guide me to do that, and that's why you're here. Now, I didn't do it about a selfish ambition. I'll just say that. My wife knows that I waited, and she thought, and others thought I should have gone sooner. There were people willing to sponsor us financially a full year sooner. I thought, I'm not quite ready yet. I've got to be sure that they aren't going to repent and get back on the track. And finally, I went right to Mr. Tkach and told him what he ought to do. And he thought a minute, and the young men whispered at him. And he said, no. He says, we're not going to change. We're going to stay on our present course. Well, their present course was changing everything. Then I knew what I had to do. And I had the best sleep that night I'd had for months. I mean that. I didn't have any doubt about what I should do. I knew what I should do. I knew what I had to do to carry on the work as Mr. Armstrong would have wanted me to do, as he would have done, as Christ would have wanted me to do. There are different attitudes and things that are done. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you... Look out not only for his own interest, but for the interests of others. Have your mind on others, on building them. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, the attitude of Christ, who in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself. The Greek word used here, if you want to write it, you note-takers, is K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kenosis. It literally means the emptying. He emptied himself of the glory, the power, the magnificence he'd had as very God and became in human flesh where he was able to suffer. He was able to die. He was able to be put on a stake and tortured like an animal and would die one of the most slow, horrifying, embarrassing, disgraceful kind of deaths they'd invented under the influence of Satan the devil to be hung up there to rot and tortured. He was willing to go through that on our behalf. And so he became, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even, even the death of the cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name, the power, the title, the authority, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God honors His Son. He wants us to honor and to worship His Son. Do you have a hero? <coughs> I know some of my heroes growing up were sports stars. But our real hero, above all heroes, ought to be Jesus Christ. To think about it that way. And even beyond that, not just a hero, but to worship. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now think about that, brethren. You, God doesn't do it for you. You have to repent and God will give you His Spirit, but then you've got to actively yield to that Spirit. You've got to study this book. Drake into the mind of Christ. You've got to meditate on it, go through it slowly, try to really understand it as we're doing today. Then pray to God for the strength through His Spirit to overcome yourself, the world, and the devil, and do that. But you don't want to work your salvation out with arrogance. I'm so good, I'm better than others. No, with fear and trembling. You're not afraid of God, but you know how weak you are. You're constantly conscious you need help. I need help every day I live. You think, well, you're Mr. Meredith. You, you've been around. You know everything. No, I don't know everything. I can't do everything. No way. Each of us has to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Don't argue and fuss about little points. Don't have that attitude. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without faith, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. When Christ comes, he's indicating again, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, that if in mind being poured out as a drink offering, like they poured out these drink offerings for God, and he knew his blood might be poured out pretty soon, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I'm willing to go through that. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus, who was the Lord Jesus. Paul's head, his high priest, his coming king. I trust in the Lord Jesus, my strength and my God. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state. I want to send this young man who's been so responsive, so dedicated. You'll notice here, he didn't say, I'll be checking with the board, and the board will take a vote, and we'll decide whether we can send Timothy or not. He said, I am going to send Timothy. There was church government. That shows that all the way through these books, too. I'm going to send Timothy. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. This is interesting. Even back during Paul's life, you think everyone was perfectly dedicated back then. Frankly, they weren't. They had human nature, believe it or not, back there. That's why two apostles, Barnabas and Paul, had this argument and split up. 
That's why Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face when Peter quit eating with the Gentiles. That's why all kinds of problems happened back there. They had splits. The brethren were getting drunk at the Passover. Some were denying the resurrection. Some were going to vote the law against others in the church. You read about all those things in 1 Corinthians. The church of God. They weren't the church of Satan. They had human nature. And even among their ministry, some were selfish and doing things for selfish ambition. And they did not sincerely seek the things of Jesus Christ just to help, to build, to serve. I know that. I used to be the director of the ministry for 12 years. And some of the ministers were very dedicated. A number were not. They just were kind of like to show off and give strong sermons and then talk real briefly and then run out real quick and not visit with the brethren. Their heart was not in serving and helping and building. So all do not seek the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, the character of Timothy, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Did Paul know did he say, God is with me and nothing bad can happen? No, he did not know. He says, I'm not sure how it's going to go with me. He didn't always know. He had to walk by faith. He didn't always know whether he's going to live six more months or six more years. He did not know. He walked by faith, as I have to do and all of us do. So he says, I'll see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Timothy, or Epaphroditus, I mean, this young man who'd come from them bringing this big offering. I wanted to send him back. My brother, he was apparently an elder, my fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was distressed or since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick. Did any of God's ministers ever get sick? Yes. Could they have died? Yes. Notice how Paul expressed it. He didn't say, well, we're in the apostolic church and God heals everybody. No, God did not always heal everybody, even in the ministry. And Paul the apostle knew that. He said he was sick to death, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. He didn't say God had to heal him and there wasn't any other way. He said, no, I'm so thankful God did choose to have mercy on him and not only on him but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. God did not always heal everybody in the apostolic church. Paul certainly indicates that right here. And keep your place and turn now to 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4.20, a reference I want to give you at this point. And I don't have a marker here, so it'll take me a while to get there too. Second Timothy 4 and verse 20. He says, in this last letter he wrote, Paul said, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus, one of his other helpers, his young ministers, I have left sick at Miletum. So he apparently anointed him. I assume he anointed him, but he left him sick. He had not yet been healed. Prophemus, he said, I have left in Miletus sick. So God did not always heal immediately, and he did not always heal everybody every time. No, he did not, even during the apostolic age. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly. I'm sending Epaphroditus back, folks, that when you see him again, you may rejoice. 
and I may be less sorrowful, knowing you're really upset, knowing he nearly died. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. He drove himself and drove himself and went through dangerous territory too, probably, to honor God and to get that big offering to Paul whom they felt was in need, and he probably was. So that's what Trophimus did, or Epaphroditus, I mean, and Paul honored that. Now let's go to chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same to you, to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, in other words, the cutters, the people that wanted to circumcise people. That was their big hobby, it seemed like. They wanted everyone circumcised. For we are the circumcision, Paul writes, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. It's good to circumcise our little baby boys at age eight, cut off that part of the body there where little smegna can develop around the boy's little organ and cause disease. Boys are likely and men are likely to get cancer of the penis, much more likely if they're not circumcised. Their mates, their, their wives can get cancer of the uterus, much more likely that's been proved in many books. It's a good, vital health measure, and it was a thing that God gave as a symbol of their willingness to obey God under the old covenant. But under the new covenant, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that at all. And so you're, if you try to outrighteous others or make them second-class citizens, second-class Christians, by that, Paul wrote, and the Jerusalem conference had already decided that's not right. So we're the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. We are spiritually circumcised. We have cut off the fleshly part of the heart, and we're circumcised in our heart. We're clean, we're pure, we're right in our heart. Spiritual circumcision. And have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh... He says that once one wants to play that game, listen here now for a minute, and then he bragged. No, he wasn't bragging. He was simply telling them things to help them so they didn't try to play this up, up, um, up on you type joke on him because he had what they had and more. If anyone else thinks of me that he may have confidence of the flesh, I'm more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. That was the strictest of the sects of Judaism. That's what he had been. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. That's how zealous I was. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless or above reproach. He kept every technical part of the washings, the animal sacrifices and washings, the rituals of the Jews. The law is that whole legal system which I explained when we went through the book of Galatians. But what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. For indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Everything I have is counted like a bunch of trash compared to Jesus Christ and my relationship with the Son of God. I count them all this honor I had in Judaism. Let's say if you've been a great sports star, all the boxing matches I won, 
all the tennis matches I've won, all the great medals I've won. If you're a great singer or something, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, going through the whole ritual system, but that which is through faith in Christ, that the righteousness, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He's not trying to do away with God's commandments, but the rituals of the law were not the way to get saved. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. Paul was going through suffering, and as he dragged that chain around, and maybe his ankles got raw, maybe his back was thrown out from time to time the way he had to lean and stoop and carry that thing, he thought, Christ went through much more. And when some of you are sick, think about it. Christ went through much more. He was God. He was willing to give up everything to set us the example to be our Savior. We need to worship Him and know that we can make it through Him living His life within us. And so he said, going through His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're sorry some of our dear brethren have died. But again, brethren, we say again and again, our goal has never been eternal life in this flesh. Our goal is eternal life as a glorified spirit being in the very family of God. And so he pressed toward that goal of the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on like my old football coach, I've told you a number of times, commence. He said, drive, drive, drive. You've got to press on. You've got to do your part. You can't quit studying. You can't quit praying. You can't quit meditating. You can't quit fasting. You've got to use the tools to bring you to God. You've got to want eternal life in the kingdom of God so bad you can taste it and go all out to get eternal life in the very family of God. Let it mean something to you. Let it stir you to action. God wants that, brethren. Paul is telling us that. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus had laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things ahead, I press, I drive myself toward the kingdom of God as he brought out, if I can get back to my place here, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let as many as are mature, if you're spiritually mature, if you really understand, have this mind, understand this approach, have this mind. And if you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. God will help you understand that you need that drive. You had better put that thing so far of every other goal in life that there's no comparison. The amount of money you make is not as important. The amount of sports events you make, the romance you might have, or the marriage, or nothing compares to eternal life in the very family of the great God of the universe. Drive toward that. Make that your number one goal. Remember Matthew 6, 33. Seek first, way above everything else, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Drive toward that goal. And that's what God wants us to do. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've attained... Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. I'm so glad Paul could write that. I don't ever say that myself because I have not been as close to God as Paul. I don't claim that. 
I've tried to set a good example overall, but I'm certainly far from perfect. But Paul said, follow my example. He was there working with them day and night, helping, giving, serving. My only excuse, Paul died when he was at least 17 or 18 years younger than I am. I, I think if he lived to 85 or 90, he would have slowed down somewhere along the line. But on the other hand, we all got to do the best we can with what we have to do with. Follow my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. We aren't perfect, but there's a pattern. For many of walk, of whom I have told you, now tell you even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. We've had people from this church who've tried to throw barbs at me or barbs at Mr. Ames or barbs at Dr. O'Neill. Oh, they're saying this or saying that or they're vain or whatever. Well, we're not perfect, but the stuff they say is sort of off the wall. It's off the charts. It has no meaning. Why are they mad? Often they just didn't get their own way about something or they get a personal healing, feelings hurt about correction or whatever happened. Anyway, many walk their enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, their minds on physical things and people and situations, not really on the big picture of humbling the self, of giving your life to God, of having Christ live in you and humbly walking with Christ right toward the kingdom of God in the way he tells you to do. For our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Does that mean we're going to heaven? No, our citizenship, our ultimate loyalty, the government we're ultimately responsible to is in heaven. Notice the rest of it. From, get that, the next word is from which we also eagerly wait. So Christ is not going to be in heaven. He's going to be from heaven. We eagerly wait Christ from heaven that he will change our vile body, our humble body, into a glorious body according to the working by which he's able to subdue all things even to himself. So our citizenship is in heaven from which we wait for the Savior, Jesus Christ. He changes, he transforms our lowly body into a glorious body. Chapter 4, I think we're going to make it. I'm hurrying a little bit here. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my crown and joy, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. These two ladies that apparently served Paul been very helpful, but they got into some kind of personal argument or feud, and Paul heard about it. It must have been so continuous that the whole church heard about it. Kind of like the coffee wars I talked about several years ago where we had some women out in, out in the out west somewhere. They had this church where they were going to get a new coffee pot and they had a meeting and they talked about buying a coffee pot next time or something. And one woman went out and bought one right away out of her own money and one of the other women got so mad she couldn't stand it. And I don't know if she left the church or whatever. But, you know, maybe the other woman was vain and buying it. I don't know. I wasn't there but don't get your nose out of joint about coffee pots. That's all I have to say. That's a mighty small thing. We do have feuds in the church. People get their nose all out of shape about little things like that. It's amazing. We have human nature. Wow. That's what they had back here. Yodi and Syntyche were upset at one another over something. And I urge you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement 
and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There is a book of life. God is keeping that book. Is your name there? Are you giving of your life to lay down your life for your brothers? Are you humble? Are you willing to yield? Are you willing to give and help and serve? Is your whole heart in giving and helping and serving to this work? Are you pouring everything in that you can? Or are you just part way holding back, holding back? Think about it. Is your life given to God or are you keeping a lot of it for yourself? So anyway, each, whatever it is, go all out for God. Those names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here Paul was as a political prisoner with the ball and chain he had to drag around all the time, even going to the bathroom. Must have been very uncomfortable. A Roman soldier with a spear guarding him, and he's telling us, rejoice. <laughs> Think about it. He had tremendous faith and courage. Rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness, or it can be graciousness, forbearance, patience, kindness. I think one of the best words is graciousness. You're gentle, you're kind, you're considerate. Graciousness may be the best one-word translation. I looked this up in the commentaries. That may be the best word. It's in the margin here. Let your graciousness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Behave as if Christ were right there in the room with you. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be constantly worrying about where your next meal is coming from or can you buy that big dress or can you get this car, the new TV set or something else right away. Don't worry about it. But in everything by prayer and supplication, prayer is one word. Supplication means continuous, humble prayer, crying out to God, God, help me, that kind of prayer. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And brethren, they are two parts of the same coin, and God describes that many times in the Bible. I hope all of us can keep that in mind. When you pray, thank God continually. Start off your prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thank you for all you've given. Thank you for our lives. Thank you for this beautiful earth. Thank you for my house, my wife, my husband, my family, my food, my car, everything I have. Honor God. Worship God. Have your prayer be filled with thanksgiving. Mr. Herbert Armstrong mentioned a couple times, and I don't remember this in public. Might have said once in church. I certainly heard him in a minister's meeting and maybe once in person. He didn't talk. I'm talking about a 36-year knowledge of him so he didn't go around talking about personal things all the time but he said rod he says i try to devote about often devote i guess he said about one-third of my prayer time to, to thanking god if he prayed an hour or let's say he prayed 45 minutes 15 minutes of just praising and thanking god praising and thanking god so that can keep you in a better attitude if you learn to do that by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, if you love God, walk with God, worship God, and thank God, thank God, have your mind on the blessings He gives, you can have tremendous peace of mind. I want to turn back quickly. There are many, many scriptures all through the Psalms, by the way, that can tell you this. But one special verse I, I like is back here in Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Isaiah wrote, 
you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You'll have perfect peace of mind if your mind is fixed on God. You're thinking about God. You're contemplating God's purpose, how real God is, how good God is, because whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And brethren, again, all through the Psalms, dozens and dozens of times, it shows how he who trusts in God, if you really concentrate, ask God for faith, read this book for faith, let God become real to you all day long. Know that God is there. He's your Father. He'll take care of you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Every hair of your head is numbered by God. Your name is probably written in His book. He's for you. He's not against you. He wants you. No matter what happens, if God before us, who can be against us? You can have perfect peace. So God wants us to have that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, whatever things are, are lovely, beautiful things, beautiful music, the beautiful earth, the beautiful creation... Whatever things are a good report, if there's any virtue, if anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Don't spend your day saying, well, so-and-so made a mistake, and -and so-and-so wasn't friendly with me, and what's he think? Is he mad at me now? Don't spend your time on that. Think on good things. The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. Do those good things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at last your care for me has flourished, for you did care, but you lacked opportunity. You weren't with me. Not that I speak in regard to need. He says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. He'd been in jail. He'd had a lot of money at times. Apparently came from a wealthy family in Tarsus. Was sent by them, probably having money to do so, to study at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of rabbis, like the Harvard University of our time. All kinds of blessings Paul had had. I know how to be a base and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned to be full and, hung- and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I have, can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And brethren, you can too and I can too, no matter what it is. As I've told you before, one of the happiest summers I ever spent, and I really mean that, was working in the woods in Oregon... And all summer long, we were living in tents or in an old cleaned-out chicken house. We slept at a sleeping bag on the floor, and the roof was kind of leaky. But we were happy. We were busy seeing the big trees and God's creation all day. And they, they, they didn't holler, timber. They'd say, down the hill, the big walk, bang. And all the birds would twitter, and then all of a sudden it'd get real quiet. And then we'd start over on the next tree. And somehow there was a great peace. I was working hard. I slept like a rock that summer. I slept like a rock. Perfect sleep. I was so tired, I didn't know what to do when I got to bed. I enjoyed that summer. I, what did I have? I had some old blue jeans, and I had a, a mattress to sleep on or a sleeping bag to sleep in, and we had to take baths in the wash tub. We'd sit it in the sun and taking, that was all we had all through the week, one or two baths, and then we'd get into the Henyon's house on the weekend and take a shower. Well, wow, a shower. <laughs> but we were happy. You could be very happy with having very little. And you all know that, but let that be blazoned in your brain. Some of you young people think, I've got to have a bigger house, 
got to have two televisions or two cars to be happy. No, you don't. For thousands of years, people lived with all, all those things. They didn't have as many divorces or as much sickness probably in many of those times as we do today. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my distress. You heard I was down to my last dime and wondering what, you know, where I was going to eat, I guess. Now, you Philippians know that in the beginning, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. You're the only church that sent tithes and offerings to me personally. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds on your account. I want you to be, have the honor from God and the blessing from God because you've gone all out and given. Indeed, I have all. Notice, brethren, this chapter, this, this, this verse. I have all and abound. I am full. He says it about three times. Having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling over, oh, aroma, excuse me, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I bet they gave him a great big bunch of gold. That's what my guess is. Their city there was noted for gold, and that's what he probably sent. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You've given to me, God's servant, he will take care of you. And God will take care of you if you give to him and not only give your money, but give your life. Give your life to him and he will take care of you always. Now to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Read every saint. Every saint, every Christian is a real a Christian is a saint. Read every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who have Caesar's household. So the leading people in Rome somehow begin to hear about this man who was over in this hired house who had a tremendous capacity to make the religion of Moses come alive and the truth come alive now through the message of Jesus Christ and the whole purpose of human existence. So they got the word got around, even Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Christ's grace, his peace of mind, his strength, his mercy. Amen. That's what Paul wrote. And that is one of the most inspiring books in the whole New Testament, I think. I hope I've helped you have at least an idea in this brief summary of the Epistles of Paul class to understand and learn how to study the real meaning word by word, verse by verse, to get the feel of the great lessons of God contained in these books in his inspired word.